Thank you for listening to this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. And we invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. Now, we invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. Go ahead and find in your Bibles Luke chapter 19. We have a fantastic passage of Scripture lined up for us this morning. It is the parable of Jesus that is known as the parable of the ten minas. Um, So go ahead and find that in Luke chapter 19. Last week uh, we studied the story of the conversion of Zacchaeus. And we mentioned that there is a connection between that story and this story. The connection that seems obvious to us is that Zacchaeus, being an unconverted person, was a terrible steward of God's resources that God had allowed him to steward in his life. But upon conversion, this genuine conversion comes upon him, and he makes this bold proclamation from this point on, everything's different. Half of my possessions I give to the poor. The other half I'm going to use to repay everybody that I've cheated. Uh, it seems to be a logical connection between the stewardship of Zacchaeus's resources and the parable of the ten minas. But this morning we're going to take a look at this parable and we're going to see a couple of things become obvious to us. We're going to wrestle through a couple of words in here. We're going to wrestle through some background to the parable. And I think that we may come away this morning with an emphasis that the parable is teaching to us that still is connected to the story of Zacchaeus, but it's connected in a way that may be different than what we have suspected it to be in, in uh, previous times. So... Here we are to study the parable of the ten minas. One of the things that we always talk about here is the fact that um, Scripture has one meaning, and that's the meaning that it had to the people that it was written to. So our task is always to not to bring the Bible into the 21st century in order to understand it, but to instead take ourselves back into the culture of Jesus back into the culture of the recipients of the epistles, the recipients of the Gospels, because what it meant to them is what it means to us. It doesn't mean anything different to us than it did to them, so we must endeavor to understand what it meant to the recipients of uh, Luke's Gospel, the hearers, the first hearers of Jesus' parable of the ten minas. I think that sometimes we can fall into the trap of thinking that we as moderns have an easier time understanding Scripture, that we can understand Scripture better than ancient people because we have science and we have greater intellect and greater learning, uh, more books. We're modern people. We have smartphones and everything. So we are uh, more equipped to understand the teachings of Scripture than ancient people. Now, all things being equal, assuming that the recipients of Luke's gospel were also indwelt by the Holy Spirit, as are we indwelt by the Holy Spirit, those things being equal, I would say that the reverse is actually true. We have a more difficult task of understanding Scripture than ancient people because they did not have to wade through a different cultural lens or a different time period in history to understand the things that were said to them. That's what we have to do. That's our task this morning. So we're going to spend a little bit of time doing that, um, and we're going to endeavor to understand what Jesus is saying to his audience and what Luke is saying to his readers here in the first century um, so many years ago. So the parable of the ten minas, we're going to take a minute to read through it first, verses 11 through 26, and then begin working through it. So from verse 11, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. 
He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave, gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received his kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, are you And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Join me as we pray for God's assistance as we endeavor to discern His Word. Father, we pray for the strength and the power, the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to reign in this room as we sift through Your Holy Word. We pray that we would be rightly struck by the holiness of what You have written to Your people. And we pray that we would treat the study of your word as such. We pray that you would enlighten our hearts and you would open the eyes of our hearts to the truth of your word this morning. Whether that truth be convicting or encouraging to us, we pray that we would open our hearts to this. I ask you, Lord, to um, glorify your son through the study of the word that is about him and comes to us by him. So we ask that you would do these things for his glory, for we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he's on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, but also we know that something else is going to occur in Jerusalem. This is actually the final teaching that Luke records for us of Jesus' itinerant mission. After this, Jesus is now in Jerusalem and everything that takes place in Jerusalem, he's going to do some teaching. There's going to, some, going to be some encounters with the religious leaders. But all of that is part of what we call Passion Week leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So the traveling ministry of Jesus ends right here. This is the final teaching that Luke has for us. And as such, we should treat it with a little bit of extra attention knowing that it's likely that Luke wanted to leave us with this thought as sort of a culminary, uh, an apex sort of thought of Jesus' traveling ministry. So he has come to Jericho. Recently, just a few days prior to Jericho, he has raised Lazarus from the dead just down the road in Bethany. And around Jesus are traveling these hordes of people. Thousands of people are traveling with Jesus. Many of them have heard of the things Jesus has done, 
Many of them have seen the things that Jesus has done. No doubt many of the people that are with Jesus have seen Lazarus come out of the tomb and they saw the blind Bartimaeus receive his sight as Jesus enters into Jericho. Perhaps they have encountered this tax collector Zacchaeus. Remember, um, as we talked about him last week, he was the third in this three-piece uh, presentation that Luke was giving us about disciples of Jesus that are being held back, are being prevented from seeing him. They're compelled to see Jesus, but they're being prevented from seeing him. The first was the children. They wanted to see Jesus, but the adults were preventing them. Jesus overcomes that. And then second was blind Bartimaeus, who wants to see Jesus, but he can't because he's blind. Jesus overcomes that. And then the third was Zacchaeus, who wanted to see Jesus, but he couldn't because he was too short. So he climbs the tree. Jesus comes to the tree, looks straight at him, and says, By name, Zacchaeus, this is the day that is appointed unto salvation for you, for I must come to your house. So he does this. They converse. They have this conversation. Zacchaeus comes to faith and repentance, and he declares that from this point on, the fruits of salvation will be evident in his life. He will give away his possessions and um, follow Jesus. And after this, Jesus then makes this declaration. Today, salvation has come to this house. Now, what would salvation have meant for Jesus' hearers? It would have meant certainly spiritual salvation. It would have meant eternal salvation, the same sorts of things that it means to us. But it also would have had intricately woven into the idea of salvation would have been freedom. <coughs> freedom from bondage, freedom from oppression. Jesus' hearers would have heard salvation and they would have thought eternal salvation and freedom from these Gentile unbelievers who are oppressing us. And so that is adding to this flurry of enthusiasm and anticipation that it's about to happen. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And what's going to take place in Jerusalem is Passover. What better time for all of this to come about than Passover? Because what was Passover? It was the remembering and the celebration of... God's delivering of his people from oppression. Remember in Egypt. And so what better time for this man Jesus, whom so many are saying is Messiah. Now there are thousands of people following him. And now this great horde of people is making their way to Jerusalem for Passover. Then the crowds are abuzz with these rumors that this is, it's close. Passover is just next week. It's just a couple of weeks away. This may be a Passover to remember. And so that's what people are talking about. And that's the rumors going around through the crowd. And Jesus, of course, knows this. If salvation can come to the house of this wicked tax collector, then is it not time for salvation to come to the house of Israel? Had you and I been in those crowds and living in these days, we would no doubt have been tempted to think likewise. And so that's what's going on in the crowd. And this is why Jesus tells the parable of the ten minas. To counteract this thought, this feeling that when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, something really special is going to happen and Roman oppression is about to end. So even Luke even tells us this. He says from verse 11, as they heard these things, what things? And salvation has come even to this house, even to the house of Zacchaeus. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell 
And the, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Why did he tell the parable? Because he was near Jerusalem. And because he's near Jerusalem, the enthusiasm is at a fever pitch. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. They had read their prophets. They had read Isaiah. They had read Amos. They had read Zephaniah and all these prophets that spoke of the victorious coming of the kingdom of God when the oppressions would be cast off. And so they are anticipating that this is now when it's going to happen. That's the lens through which we should read the parable. That's the setting. The setting is that Jesus tells this parable to counteract a false feeling that the future coming of the kingdom of God is about to happen once Jesus gets to Jerusalem. So then Jesus proceeds to tell the parable. Before we get into the parable, let's just spend a few moments talking about some things that happened around the time of Jesus here that will play heavily into the parable that Jesus tells. Does anybody know from your scriptures um, a fellow by the name of Herod? We all know Herod. Anybody know something Herod did in the scriptures? Does somebody name something that Herod did? Cut off John's head. Something else Herod did? Killed the babies in Bethlehem. Something else Herod did? Yep, yep. Incest, yep, yep. Okay, so lots of things that Herod did. Actually, there's more than five. There's more than Her, uh, one Herod in Scripture. There's actually five King Herods in Scripture. Six, if we, uh, well, well, I'll explain that in just a minute, but it could be six. But it's, there's at least five Herods in Scripture. Herod was not so much the name of a person as it was a family name. So we'll talk about that in just a minute. But before we go there, Rome, of course, was ruling most of the civilized world at this point. The Roman Empire was at its peak, um, and they ruled, of course, the land of Israel. And one thing that the Roman Empire did and did very well was they maintained order. One of the things, and until the later, the latter period of the Roman Empire, when they began to get too large and couldn't maintain their own empire, but in this period of time, Rome maintained, maintained exquisite peace and order in their uh, provinces. And one of the ways that they did this was that they understood that the Caesar in Rome did not have to be intimately involved in everything that took place in the provinces that they had conquered. And so they were very open to having local kings and local authorities rule over certain, certain ethnic groups of people. These would have been puppet kings. They answered to Rome. They ruled at the pleasure of Rome. Once they displeased Rome, they were out of there, but they were nonetheless had a, had a certain degree of authority over the area in which they ruled. Rome found this to be a very efficient way to rule their kingdom. So along comes this guy named Herod. Um, Herod, in the year 40 B.C., and now during this period, Rome, of course, rules over ancient Israel. So 40 B.C. comes along, and Herod then travels to Rome and meets with a guy by the name of Caesar, by the name of Mark Antony. We know of him. So he goes and he meets with Mark Antony and he persuades Mark Antony that he is the one to rule over Israel. Now, Herod is neither a Jew nor a Roman. He is uh, Idumean. Um, what that means is he is descended from the um, um, Edomites. He's an Edomite. Remember those from the Old Testament. So he's neither Jew and he's neither Roman. So nobody really likes him very much. But he does persuade 
Caesar, Mark Antony, that he should rule over ancient Israel, over the, the territory of Israel, which he, he starts ruling in 39 B.C. He then rules from 39 B.C. to 4 B.C. He was the Herod, the King Herod. He called himself Herod the Great because he was so modest. But he was the King Herod who put to death the two-year-old babies in Bethlehem. And if you're thinking really closely, you're thinking, well, he died in 4 B.C., so how did he do? Well, that's a different story altogether. But he was the one who put to death the two-year-old babies in Bethlehem. Well, then after he died, he had three sons. All of them were also named Herod. There was Herod Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and Herod Philip. Herod Philip is briefly mentioned one time in Mark's gospel, but Mark doesn't call him Herod Philip. He just calls him Philip. So if we count that, that makes six Herods, but we won't count that one. But his other two sons were Herod Archelaus and Herod Antipas. Now, when King Herod died, he divided his kingdom between his three sons, Herod Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and Herod Philip. Herod Antipas was given Galilee, so he was the one who cut off John the Baptist's head later on. He was the one who was deceived by the dancing girl and everything. That was Herod Antipas. He was the one who uh, committed incest with his um, niece. Um, his brother, Herod Archelaus, was the one who was given Israel. So King Herod dies, and his three sons begin ruling the three kingdoms that Herod the Great had divided up. However, they did not yet have the approval of Rome, so they still needed to go to Rome and plead their case and get the blessing of Rome to continue ruling in their father's, after their father's death. However, before they went to Rome to plead their case, this guy Herod Archelaus, who was a wicked, wicked, evil man, when he came to power, the first thing he did was the very first Passover that took place. He had his officials round up 3,000 Jewish leaders of society and just killed them. They did nothing wrong. They weren't his enemies. He just rounded up 3,000 influential Jews and killed them because his philosophy of leading was, you are going to be terrified of me. He didn't try to endear himself to the people. His philosophy was, you are going to fear me and you're going to be terrified of me. So that's the first thing that he did. So he was deeply hated by the, by the Jewish people for good reason. Well, anyway, he does need to go to Rome along with his two brothers to plead to uh, offer his case to the Caesar that they should be allowed to continue to be kings. So they go to Rome to do that, but the Jewish people are so upset that this guy Archelaus is now going to be king over them that they actually appoint a delegation to follow him and plead to Caesar, do not let this man rule over us. He is evil and wicked and he's already killed 3,000 of us for no reason. So this uh, delegation goes to plead their case before Caesar to not let Archelaus be king. Well, they did have some degree of success. Um, Caesar did allow Herod Archelaus to rule, but he wouldn't let him use the title king. He made him call himself ethnarch, which just means the uh, leader or the king of an ethnic people. But he's had all the same authority and all of the same power that the king would normally have had. So here he goes. He's given all the authority from Rome, just without the name, and he comes back to find out, of course, that there was this... He's so disliked that they got together a group of people to go and try to talk Caesar out of letting him be king. So he's going to be a very, very easy person to live with for the next few decades. So he comes to power. He's hated and he's evil. He is the one. Remember when Mary and Joseph hear about 
their father, the father, King Herod the Great, killing the baby boys, they flee to Egypt. But then remember the angel come and tells them it's safe. The one who tried to kill Jesus is dead. You can come back now. But then they didn't go back to Bethlehem. You remember why? Because they heard that Archelaus was now in power. And they knew who Archelaus was. And so they, they said, we're not going back to Bethlehem. Or Bethlehem, we're, we're going to Nazareth, where Herod Antipas is ruling. Remember that? So that's how Archelaus came to power. You're already seeing a lot of connections between the parable that Jesus tells and the real history that took place about 30 years before Jesus tells the story. Now, just to finish up with the Herods, a few years uh, after this, um, the grandson of King Herod the Great takes, takes the throne. He, his name was King Herod Agrippa I. And you may remember him. He shows up in Acts 12. He's the one that um, didn't give glory to God and God struck him dead and the worms ate him. Um, and then the last and final Herod was King Herod Agrippa II. He's the one that shows up in Acts 25. He's the one that um, Paul shares the gospel with him and he says, in a short time you would have me to be a Christian. And Paul says, um, I would have you and everybody in this room to be just as I am except for these chains. Right? Remember the hymn? And then he says... Um, uh, this man's done nothing deserving of death. If he hadn't appealed to Caesar, we could set him free. That's, that was the final King Herod Agrippa. So that's, it's a little bit confusing when we talk about Herods because there are so many and they did so much in the scriptures. But the one that we'll focus on this morning is Herod Archelaus, who was the most wicked and the most violent and the most evil of all the Herods. He's the one who 30 years prior to this was given a kingdom by his father, but yet didn't have it yet. He had to travel to a faraway superior king to plead his case and receive the kingship from a superior king and then return. However, when he went to do this, a delegation followed him to plead to the superior king, don't let this guy rule over us, which he ended up doing. And then he returns and he's a very wicked, very hated person. You see... This isn't just parallel to the parable that Jesus tells. Jesus is retelling this story with a few minor differences. This would have been clearly in the mind of everyone who heard this parable that Jesus tells. Everyone would have heard this and said, well, yeah, we know who he's talking about. He's talking about Archelaus. That's exactly what happened. There's a couple of differences that we'll look at as we go through. So that's the framework through which we're seeing the parable that Jesus tells. And the reason that Jesus is telling it is because a lot of people are thinking, now's the time for the victory parade. We're marching to Jerusalem in this big victory parade because Jesus is about to, to just put the hammer down onto Rome. Remember what they say to Jesus when he gets into Jerusalem. Hosanna. He's here to say, right? So this is the mood. This is what's going on. This is why Jesus tells the parable. Now, with all that in mind... Um, by the way, is it, everybody's sort of wrapped up in this victory motif right now. And isn't, isn't it true that it's still the same? Even today, aren't Christians just still wrapped up in this idea that we're on victory parade and that following Jesus is all about following the victor into, as he's going to depose all of his enemies and all this sort of thing? Um, it's amazing to me how many Christians still think that we're in victory parade mode when Jesus clearly says there's a victory and there's a victory parade the one that you're thinking about doesn't come to much later the victory parade that we're in now is my victory over you 
That's the victory parade that Jesus is leading right now. As Paul says to the Colossians, his victory is victory over us, over our sin, over our rebellion. He has won the victory over rebels. And that is the victory parade. The victory is victory by the Holy Spirit over our sin. This is a humble parade. This isn't a flag-waving parade. That parade comes later. But in any case, this is why Jesus is telling the parable. So now, to dive into verse 12. Verse 12, he said, Therefore, a nobleman, or literally a man of noble birth, see the connection already to Jesus. Jesus, of course, was the one who had the greatest noble noble birth of all. So the, a nobleman, a man of noble birth, went into a far country. And so we see how Luke is setting us up to understand this delayed return of the king. He told us as he introduced the parable that the reason Jesus says this is because a lot of people think that this is about to happen right now. So he sets us up with that, but then he also says in the telling of the parable... This nobleman is going to a far away kingdom and has us thinking, okay, a far away kingdom, that means a long journey, a long time before he gets back. So he goes into a far kingdom to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Verse 13, calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, and you probably have a footnote in your Bible there, that a mina is about three months wages for a laboring person that actually it's a it's hundred days wages for a laboring person so it's no small amount of money several thousands of dollars but it's not this immense fortune that these servants could have taken it and ran away to the Mediterranean and lived off it for the rest of their life it's several thousand dollars but it's not a huge fortune so he gives them ten minas one mina each and he says to them engage in business until I come so now let's pause right there and let's look at your Bibles probably say something similar, engage in business until I come. Does anybody have anything different that you, that's maybe significantly different at all? Probably not because I, as far as I know, all of the modern translations translate it this way. All the translations translate it somewhat similarly as far as I know. But the word that's translated here, until I come, could also be translated because I come. And the two of those carry two different meanings. Both are equally valid translations. However, they're used differently. If it were to be translated, because I come, then the coming becomes the cause, or causative, as we sometimes say. In other words, engage in business because I come. So our translators have a decision. Do I translate this, engage in business until I come, or engage in business because I come? Now let me help us to see why that's important. If Jesus is saying, engage in business until I come, then the point of the parable is, make hay while the sun shines. Jesus is coming back, and he's given you resources, and it's important for you to use those resources wisely for his kingdom, why? Because you've got a limited amount of time before he comes back. All of that is true. All of that is biblical. All of that is helpful. That would be the point if Jesus is saying, engage in business until I come. However, if Jesus is saying, engage in business because I come, 
then the point of the parable completely changes. And let me show us why. If Jesus says, engage in business because I come, then the point is, you must have faith that I will return as king. Let me say that again. The point then becomes, you must have faith and you must act on the faith that I will return successfully as king. Think of it this way. Remember who the parable is about. It's about Archelaus. Let's say, for example, that Archelaus is about to go to Rome to, to negotiate with Caesar for his kingship. And he gives some money to a couple of his servants and says to them, while I'm gone, I want you to take these resources and I want you to get, get busy putting the logistics in place for my rule. I'm going to need an office. And I want that office to have a nice big sign out front, Archelaus. I want uh, the best furniture in that office, the best location downtown. Uh, I'm going to need some business cards that say Archelaus. Uh, you bring them to me, I'll slaughter them, you know, whatever you want to put on there. I need some, uh, I need a, a way to get around, I need a nice big carriage or a big chariot. I want my name on the side of it, right? Now, if you are his servant and you take his resources and you do all those things and his negotiations with Caesar are unfavorable, then you have now placed yourself in a very bad position. He is hated. And if he's not made king, then you just let everybody know where your cards are. And if he doesn't work out with Caesar, then you're out cold. On the other hand, if his negotiations with the king are successful, and he returns and sees that you've, you've got his office all set up, his business cards ready to go, his phone lines are put in, everything, everything's ready to go for you, Archelaus, then you're in a different position. That's the meaning I think that Jesus wants to convey. I'm going away to a far country, but have faith that I will return as king. Therefore, use these resources as though you believe that I am returning as king. Remember why Jesus is telling the parable. He's telling the parable because everybody's about to get really disappointed when he goes to Jerusalem and the Romans don't run back to Rome. And so he's telling this parable to say, it's going to be a long time. There's going to be a delay. But here's what's important, that you believe that I do come back, and I do come back as king, and therefore you live your life as such right now. You put your stake in the ground on my plot of land. You raise your flag with the name Jesus on it. Because you know and you believe in your heart that I am coming back as king. You see, that's a different message than if Jesus is saying, do business until I return. Do business until I return means make the most of this time. Don't waste God's resources, make the most of them. If Jesus says, do business because I come, that's different. Engage your life in such a way that you believe without a doubt that I will return as king. Do not hedge your bet. Put all your, all your eggs in my basket and that's how you're to live your life. I think that that's Jesus' point. Live your life as though you know for certain I am the king. I will come back successfully coronated as king. 
and I will rule as such. I think that's what Jesus is saying. I think that fits with Luke's introduction of the parable. And I think that's going to fit very well with the three characters that we're going to see in the parable as we move on. So, engage in business because I come. And by the way, how many of us today are not engaging in business because we know that Jesus the King is returning? How many of us engage our day-to-day life without the, the firm, solid belief that we know Jesus is returning as king. None of us would say that. None of us would express any sort of doubt. We know Jesus is coming back as king. But how many of us actually make all of our decisions? How many of us plan all of our time? How many of us engage the things that we engage because we know Jesus is coming back as king? I would say that many of us fall into the second category of servants that we're going to see as we move along, that we believe it with all of our head, but maybe not all of our schedules. So, engage in business until I come. Verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. There's so much for us to unpack there. First of all, Jesus says, but his citizens hated him. Jesus does not say the people who lived in the region that he hoped to rule over hated him. Jesus says his citizens hated him as though he already is the king. And these already are his citizens. And we can take that to, to be a reminder for us that all of us are subject, subject to Jesus Christ. We live in his country. He rules over all of us. I think that oftentimes we can see in those who reject Christ in their life, um, even those who profess to be atheists or those who don't believe in Jesus, I think that we see in them this sense that if I reject Jesus, He has nothing to do with me. And that's categorically false. If you reject Jesus, He still rules over you. If you accept Jesus, he still rules over you. If you love Jesus, he rules over you. If you hate Jesus, he still rules over you. He rules you because you live in his country. He rules you because he made you. He rules you because he creates the air that you breathe and the food that you eat. So to say that we want nothing to do with Jesus in our life does not free us from him in any way whatsoever. He still rules over us. So he says his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him. Notice in the story, Jesus Jesus gives no indication for why the citizens hate this person. Now, all this, of course, is coming from the true story of Archelaus. The Jews had plenty of reasons to hate Archelaus. He deserved their hatred. But in the parable that Jesus tells, there is, in fact, there's no reason given that the citizens hate him. And in fact, when we look A little bit later in the parable, we're going to see that the character of the nobleman is such that he does not deserve their hatred. So that reminds us of, uh, you know, places like John 15, verse 25, I think it is, where he was hated without cause. Or Isaiah 53, he's hated and there's no reason for him to be hated. You You ever struggle with that? You ever find that to be appalling as you see this world in which we live, this culture that is so hateful of Jesus. And you say, why? 
What has he done? He's loved you and he's given himself for you. You may not believe that, but why hate him so? In the same way, this nobleman is hated by his citizens. And according to how Jesus tells the parable, there seems to be no reason for their hatred. So he's hated by his citizens. They send a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So whose authority does the delegation accept? Somebody above him. Somebody above him. The, the superior king. Whose authority do they not accept? The nobleman. Isn't it amazing how many people so readily admit that there is a God and he did create these things, but his son, we want nothing to do with his son. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? All but the hardcore atheists seem to be willing to admit that this world is so incredibly designed that there must have been a creator and there must be a God. We don't know if his name is Allah or if the uh, Buddhists have it right or whatever. We don't know. But, that, but yeah, there does seem to be a God. But this Jesus, we don't want anything to do with him. Isn't it that true? And so in the same sense, the delegation, the people of this country, accept the authority of the supreme king. But they do not accept the authority of the nobleman. We do not want this man to reign over us. Then verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So there we have to pause and uh, wrestle through another word. The word that's translated, it takes four English words to translate it. Um, uh, in verse 15 again, what they had gained by doing business. That word um, in the Greek is transliterated as that. So... Um, Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Sure. There's, um, God told me that there's a special reward in heaven for whoever wants to pronounce that correctly right now. Everybody's going for it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you see pragmat, pragmat in there. That's where we get our word pragmat, pragmatic or pragmatism. It, it, what the word means, um, the, the primary meaning is to engage in business. The secondary, lesser used meaning is to profit by engaging in business. Only shows up this one time in all of Scripture. So obviously it's a very precise word. But the central meaning, the primary meaning, is to engage in business. A valid secondary meaning is to profit by engaging in business. And I think probably all of our Bibles have chosen the secondary meaning. What? Tell me, what have you gained what have you profited with my resources while I've been away? So let's think about this and let's think about how the parable is changed if we choose the primary meaning or the secondary meaning. If we choose the secondary meaning, then the focus of the parable becomes what? Gain. Put it in another word. Profit. Put it in another word. Revenue. Revenue. No. Success, right? Gain, success. If we choose the secondary meaning, the focus of the parable becomes success, doesn't it? If we choose the primary meaning, the focus of the parable doesn't become success, but instead it becomes faithfulness. You see the difference? 
if Jesus' words were, bring them before me, I want to see how successful they were. Then his focus is success in ministry, success in using God's resources. If Jesus' words were, bring the servants before me, I want to see what business they engaged in. Then the focus is not success, but simply faithfulness. And look at the nobleman's accolades of the good servants. What does he say? Well done, good servant. You have been what? Successful with little? You have been faithful with little. That's the point. The point is not success in using God's resources. The point is not increase. The point is not gain. Because what does Paul say? That gain is God's. We don't do that. The point is not success in using God's resources in life. The point is faithfulness. And so for that, I would suggest that what the nobleman actually says is, bring these before me. I want to see what you've been doing. Open up your books. I want to see how you spent your time. Show me your schedule. I want to see the appointments that you've been making. I left you with some resources and some instructions. I want to know how you've been spending your time. I want to talk to your neighbors. I want to ask them, has this guy, have you seen him engaging in my business? And they may answer, oh, yeah, yeah. Every time you see the guy, he's talking about this nobleman guy. Or they may say, uh, not so much. Yeah, he's kind of watching football all the time and doing, uh, he's going fishing a lot and he's doing all this sorts of things, you know. In other words, the nobleman, the nobleman wants to know how much have you been engaging in setting up my kingdom and preparing for my return in spreading word of me? I want to know how you've engaged in this. And I think that that is the point that Jesus wants to make. He's not interested in rewarding success. He's interested in recognizing faithfulness. So, <clears throat> he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had been doing with their time. Verse 16, the first came before him saying, Lord or Master, your mina has made ten minas more. Look at how that servant puts it. Um, he doesn't say, I had a pretty good plan. I, I had a good vision. I put it into place. I put some good people around me. And we turned one mina into ten. He says, your mina has done this. I took your gift, and the fruit of that gift is what your gift produced, not me. He's humble. He puts the emphasis on not himself, but he says, Master, Lord, your mina has done this. He says, all I did was do what you told me to do, which was engage in your business. Somehow, you have turned one mina into ten. And so, here it is. Here's what you have done. Here's the fruit of your gift. Notice his humility, his humbleness, his um, eagerness to see the scope of the nobleman increase um, in his... Uh, and his interest in the nobleman's kingdom and the nobleman's rule. We see that in verse 16. Then verse 17, here comes the accolades from the nobleman. And so he said to him, well done, good servant. Don't you, don't you read those words in scripture and just something, just sort of chills come up your, your back or go up your arm and, and when you think of those words said to you, well done, good servant. 
Well done, good servant, because you have been, not successful, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. Notice the reward of faithfulness is not privilege. Notice that the reward of faithfulness is greater responsibility. The reward of faithfulness is not privilege. The reward of faithfulness is greater responsibility. Makes me want to pull my hair out how I see Christians continue to get this wrong, that somehow the reward of faithfulness are temporal blessings in this life, are uh, increased privilege in this life. We see this all the time. And I'll go back to this an example I used not too long ago of, uh, forget where I was, but I see this you know, $60,000 Mercedes hardtop convertible sports car kind of thing with this license plate on the front, and I forget the exact words, but the point of the license plate was, um, God has done this for me. Right? And is it right to acknowledge that all good things come from God? Absolutely, because they do. Is it wrong to say, because I've been faithful to Him, here's what He does for me? That is not biblical. That is sub-biblical. The rewards of faithfulness are not greater privilege, greater earthly blessing. The rewards of faithfulness are greater responsibility. I kind of have a feeling that ruling over ten cities is going to be a bigger job than ruling over one minor. I think that his workload just got a great deal more compacted up. I think that he's going to have a whole lot more on his plate now because he's been rewarded with greater responsibility. So he says, you shall have authority over ten cities. Verse 18, here comes the second one who, has, who was given the one mina and he has, turned, uh, it has been turned into five minas. And so he says the same thing to him. Verse 19, and so he said to him, you shall be over five cities. Now verse 20. Verse 20, then another came saying this. You may be aware that in the Greek there are a couple of different words for another. There's um, homios, which means another of the same kind, and there's heteros, which means another of a different kind, right? That's where we get our words um, homosexual and heterosexual, another of the same kind or another of a different kind. So the word here is another of a different kind. In other words, another servant of a totally different flavor, of a different kind, of a different heart, of a different makeup, another one of a different kind comes and says, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. So the first thing that we see there is that his relationship with the nobleman is based upon what? Fear. Fear. He's afraid of him. He fears him. There are so many today that claim the name of Christ that their relationship with God is based on the same thing, fear. They believe that there's a creator God. They believe his son is Jesus. They believe he's coming back and they're afraid. And so their relationship is based upon fear and fear alone. There's entire churches that are based only on fear. His relationship with the nobleman is only one of fear. I feared you. He says, I feared you. Why did he fear him? He says, first of all, he says, um, here's your mina. I kept it away in a handkerchief. If something's precious to you, if you want to keep something safe, do you put it in a handkerchief? I don't think that that's exactly the safest place to put it. So it kind of shows some nonchalance, some some disregard, some disinterest, some indifference. Yeah, okay. No, there's some real inconsistencies with what he says. So let's get to those inconsistencies. He says, I was afraid of you. Why was I afraid of you? He says, 
because, because you are a severe man. Oh, let me back up. Um, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. So he's afraid of him, and he calls him what? Severe. Severe. Austere, harsh, hard nose. Uh, this this is a hard character, a hard person. You 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 met may know people that are just hard nosed people. They want what they want, and they're going to get what they want through hard nosed means, right? So you're a severe, hard man. How is he a hard man? You take what you did not deposit, reap what you did not sow. Boil that down into one word. You're a thief. You're a thief. You're hard. And you're a thief. You take what's not yours. You steal to get what you want. And so I'm afraid of you. I did not want you to come back and not have the mina to give back to you because I know that you are a hard person that steals. Now, it may be that he was trying to pay him a compliment because there are some cultures that appreciate thievery. One of them is the Bedouin culture, which is inhabitants of this area. So perhaps that's kind of what he's getting at, that he's trying to pay a compliment, a compliment that absolutely does not work because this, this nobleman is not impressed to be called a thief. Or perhaps he was just... Either way, what that shows is that he has no understanding of who the nobleman is. He has no relationship with the nobleman to know what he's like at all. In his heart, he thinks of him as a hard person, a person who steals what's not his. Why does he think that? Because he doesn't know him. He has no relationship with him other than a relationship of fear. Do you know someone who thinks of God as a hard God? I think we all know someone who has in their mind this opinion of God that he's hard. And he takes what's not his. I'm reading, uh, right now I'm reading a biography of John Adams, which is, uh, you, can't, you can't read about John Adams without also Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams are so entwined in that whole story. And Thomas Jefferson, you probably know, you've heard, he was no friend of Christianity. He, uh, he never outright denied it, but he was no friend of Christianity whatsoever. Thomas Jefferson thought of God in the same way. He thought of God as a hard God that took what wasn't his. Thomas Jefferson's wife died when she was 33 or 34. Thomas Jefferson had six children. He buried four of them. And so he thought of God as a hard God that took what wasn't his. You know somebody like that who thinks of God as just this hard, severe, hard-nosed character that will take what he wants, whether it's his or not. That person, just like this servant, has no understanding of God. No one who has met Jesus thinks of him as hard. No one who has met Jesus thinks of him as a thief. So this servant 
has never really met the nobleman and doesn't, doesn't even know him at all. So he says, <clears throat> I hid it away in a handkerchief. What he's really doing, remember we think that the point of the parable is believe that the nobleman will be successful and he will return as king. This servant didn't. He didn't believe that the nobleman was going to return as king. So what does he do? He doesn't want to stick his neck out there and become known as the servant of this guy. But neither does he want to lose the mina in case he comes back. That's why he just hides it away. So either way, he thinks in his, in his mind he's hedging his bets. Either way, if he comes back as king, yeah, I could have done more, but at least I didn't lose the mina. If he doesn't come back as king, well, nobody knows. That's what he's doing. He's hedging his bets. And so many, so many today are doing that same thing. They're hedging their bets. We think Jesus is coming back, but just in case, we're not going to completely sell out to him. So he says, this is what I did. I knew you to be a hard man, take what, taking what wasn't yours. Then verse 23, I'm sorry, verse 22, and he said to him, I will condemn you with, his, with your own words. In other words, what he says is, I'm not conceding that that's true. The nobleman is not conceding that he really is a hard man and he really is a thief. But what he's saying is, even if that was true, what you said is still not consistent. That's what he's about to say. I'm going to condemn you with your own words. You wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man. Or in other words, you experienced me as a severe man. Well then, taking not what was not mine and, and taking what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow. Well then, why did you not just put my money in the bank so at my coming I may have collected it with interest? Do you know that the Old Testament categorically denies that any Jew can charge interest to any other Jew? That it was against the law. It's called usury. Do you know that Jewish people were never allowed, still are not allowed by God, to charge interest to other Jews according to their beliefs? So what he's saying is, you thought me to be such a severe, hard-nosed thief? If you really thought that, then you would have also thought that I wouldn't have had a problem breaking the law. So you would have put it in the bank, and then at least then I could have gotten interest. So even your words, even what you say is not consistent, he says. And then verse 24, and he said to those who stood by him, take the mina from him. So in other words, this man's false misconception of the nobleman actually becomes reality. His judgment is that his misperception of the, of the nobleman becomes what the nobleman really is to him. He thinks him a hard person. He just showed that he's hard. He thinks that he takes what isn't his. He just took the mina away from him, you see? The judgment that falls upon him is that the way he misperceives the nobleman to be becomes what the nobleman actually is to him. Listen to Psalm, verse, uh, Psalm 18, verse 25 and 26. The psalmist says, With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself purified. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous or twisted. In other words, according to what's in your heart, according to the perception that you have of God, your eternal judgment will be that that becomes your reality. To those who think God hard, 
He will be very hard for eternity. To those who think God a thief, their eternity will be God continually taking from them what they feel is theirs. Notice how Jesus sums up the parable. Which, even what you thought you had is going to be taken away from you. You know, the Bible talks about people who are condemned to hell as gnashing their teeth. And that's, a, that's an expression of anger. Those who are condemned to hell won't, won't think of God and just, oh, we, we see what he, He's like now. We just wish that we could have a chance to be forgiven. They're going to hate Him continually and increasingly forever and ever and ever because they're going to see Him for how they wanted to see Him in their life. There's a great analogy of this in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, I know I use the Chronicles of Narnia too much for sermon illustrations, but whatever. Uh, in the last, the, the last book, the, yeah, yeah, I don't, um, but the last book in the series, The Last Battle, okay? the premise of the book, if you haven't read the book, is that um, the king Aslan has been gone a long time. So you already see the parallel. The king Aslan has been gone a long time and a lot of people have never seen him. They've never heard of him. And so people are starting to forget about him. Well, then this ape, this wicked ape, finds a lion skin, a lion suit, and he dresses up a donkey as a lion. They pretend that he's Aslan, only he's evil, and he's given evil commands, and he's really messing up the kingdom, and pe people are really upset about this and everything. Well, then the true Aslan comes onto the scene. And so then there's this battle between the false Aslan and the true Aslan. Well, in the course of all this, there's these characters called the dwarfs. And the dwarfs originally believe in the false Aslan. But then they're shown that the false Aslan isn't real. And then everybody thinks, well, okay, now he's, they're gonna, the dwarfs are going to be on our side in the battle because they're going to believe in the real Aslan now. But they don't do that. Instead, they say, we were fooled once. We won't be fooled again. You took us in... This one took us in. We're not going to. We're going to do is we're going to watch all you guys fight this out, and the winner is who we'll be with. And then they have this saying: the dwarfs are for the dwarfs. We're not going to be fooled again. Well, then all that culminates. The battle is over. Aslan is, in, Aslan is initiating his eternal kingdom, and here are the dwarfs. And the dwarfs are inside this little stable barn in the dark. And the other characters come and. and and they say to Aslan, Aslan, what can we do for the dwarfs? And Aslan says, come and let me show you what I can do and let me show you what I can't do. And he goes over to the dwarfs who are all kind of huddled together and Aslan shakes his mane and all this luxurious food falls out of his mane and fine wine all comes to the hands of these dwarfs and they eat it and they drink it. Only they think they're drinking trough water that the donkey's been drinking out of. And they think they're eating hay and dirt. And they say, who is this playing these tricks on us, giving us this dirt and this hay and this manure and this trough water? And the others are saying, that's not what, this is, this is wonderful food. And Aslan says, you see what I cannot do. He says, they were so intent on not being taken in, I cannot take them out. For who they thought me to be is who I will now be to them forever. Their judgment was that Aslan became the cruel lion that they thought he was. This is the wicked servant's judgment that the nobleman will now be as hard-nosed 
as he pretended that he was. So, take away what he has, give it to the, give it to the one who has ten minus. Verse twenty five. And they said to him, "But wait, he has a he has ten already." Isn't it amazing how grace, if it's not given to you, is always hard to deal with? Isn't that amazing that somewhere in your heart, somewhere down in there, when grace is shown to someone else, it's always hard. I don't care how spiritual you are. I don't care how often you read the parable of the workers in the vineyard and how, how well you know that the lesson is that God shows grace to whom he will show grace and those who are in his kingdom must be okay with that. Somewhere deep in our hearts when we see God pour out lavish grace on someone else, it bothers us. He's already got 10. What does he need with more? He's already got 10, Lord. But this is the point. This is the whole point. The rewards are not proportional to the faithfulness. In, file, in fact, the, wor- the rewards are wildly improportional. Is that a word? Improportional? Unproportional? They're wildly disproportionate. There's the word. They're wildly <laughs> disproportionate to the faithfulness. He was given a few thousand dollars. Now he's given rule over ten cities. And then he is given even more. And here comes the point. Verse 26, I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That's a picture of eternity right there. To the ones who have, more will be given. And more, and more, and more. And when we think that we've received all of God's grace, then more comes, and more comes, and eternity for us will be a never-ending pouring out of God's abundant grace upon us. To the extent that even the one who has, you're going to be given more and more and more. But then the flip side of that is that those outside of Christ will experience an eternity of thinking what was theirs is even that's taken away. And even that's taken away. And even that's taken away. And then that is taken away for eternity and eternity. There's a snapshot of eternity. But then verse 27, but for as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. You see, there's three characters in the parable. And those three characters cover all of humanity. There's the faithful servant who loves the nobleman and is dedicated to the nobleman and has interest in seeing the nobleman glorified. And then there's the false servant who claims to serve the nobleman, but really is hedging their bets and really doesn't want to sell out completely to the nobleman. He wants to play both sides against the middle. And then there's the outright enemies who openly declare, we don't want this man ruling over us. Those are the only three choices for humanity. And everyone in this room is one of those three. You are either the faithful servant who knows the nobleman and knows him to be good and kind and gracious and generous. And in your love for him and in your loyalty to him, you desire to see his name extolled. Or, and unfortunately our churches are filled with this, or you're the one who claims to be his servant. 
yet you don't really know him. And you're not really invested in his name or his kingdom or seeing him glorified. Or you openly declare that you want no part of him. enjoyed this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash garden fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org.